Hello, everyone, and welcome to another installment of Podcast 360. I'm your moderator, Amanda Balby, with Consultant 360 Specialty Network. My guest today is Dr. Anthony Fauci, who is the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases at the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda, Maryland. Dr. Fauci and his colleagues recently authored a commentary about comorbidities in people living with HIV and how managing those comorbidities may be hindering progress toward ending the HIV epidemic. Dr. Fauci joins us today to share his insights about managing these comorbidities, as well as his thoughts on treatment as prevention. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Fauci. To start, what do you think needs to happen to address the comorbidities associated with HIV infection? Well, I think the important thing first is to recognize that as we have a major effort to end the epidemic as we know it, namely the goal in the United States at least of decreasing HIV transmissions by 75% over five years and by 90% over the next 10 years, we should not lose sight of the fact that there will still be a very large number of people who are living with HIV, even though they are doing very well on antiretroviral drugs that are suppressing the virus to below detectable level. Because we realize now that even people who are well managed on antiretroviral drugs do have an increase in a variety of comorbidities, such as cardiovascular disease, chronic kidney disease, osteopenia, hepatic disease, and even cancers. So what really one needs to do is to be heads up to look for these things and to be able to address and hopefully treat them where appropriate because the population of persons with HIV will have a higher incidence of these types of comorbidities. Some of them you can address. For example, at the NIH, we're doing a study to look at what the uh, effect of statins, particularly patavastatin, on reducing the risk of cardiovascular disease on persons with HIV. The same holds true for hepatic disease that can be treated. You don't want to let that fall between the cracks. So it really is a heads-up type of a paper to say that although we're all excited about ending the HIV epidemic as we know it, we should not forget the fact that there are many people living with HIV who also have an increased incidence of a variety of problems, which we refer to as comorbidities. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure our listeners today are aware of the myriad comorbidities associated with HIV, those ranging from neurocognitive disorders to cardiovascular diseases, as you mentioned. Um, can you talk a little bit more about the clinical challenges associated with HIV-related comorbidities and how you have overcome them in clinical practice? Well, yes. I mean, obviously, the one that is one of the most common is cardiovascular disease. The incidence of cardiovascular disease, all other parameters being equal in someone with HIV, even well-treated HIV, is certainly greater than the incidence in the general population of non-HIV-infected individuals. And the way you deal with it in, in, in practice is to be aware of it and to treat it appropriately as you confront it. Uh, to expect to see it at a higher level of incidence than you would see in the general population. The treatment is standard treatment. Obviously, if you have somebody 
with cardiovascular disease, you treat them accordingly with all the appropriate measures. That could be lipid-lowering agents such as the statins. That could be attention to hypertension. That could be taking a look at cardiovascular abnormalities that might require intervention, either radiologic intervention or perhaps even surgical intervention, a variety of other approaches. The same holds true for hepatic disease to make sure that individuals who would have a higher incidence of hepatitis C get appropriately treated because there is now, as we all know, curative, highly curative therapies for hepatitis C. Uh, to also treat the osteoporosis and osteopenia, which you can do with certain medications. So there are interventions for many, if not all, of these comorbidities that the practicing physician needs to be aware of, not only of what the interventions are, but to stay heads up that your patient, if it's a person with HIV, would have a higher incidence of this comorbidity. And you kind of talked about this before, antiretroviral therapy. Um, it's significantly reduced the burden of HIV since its advent. Um, however, ART has contributed to certain comorbidities. What is being done or what do you hope will be done to address these issues in the future? Well, you know, it's an interesting confounding issues in that the immune activation that's associated with HIV infection is one of the biggest drivers of many of the comorbidities. Antiretroviral drugs themselves can contribute to some of these comorbidities. So obviously, as newer antiretroviral drugs come out, you want to pick the one who over clinical practice might have less of a tendency to lead to comorbidities. But importantly, the issue that we're working on is how to reduce that somewhat subliminal level of immune activation, which is a major driver of comorbidities such as cardiovascular disease. And we have learned, unfortunately, that even in individuals whose viral load is suppressed to below detectable levels by antiretroviral therapy, there's still a low level of smoldering aberrant immune activation, which continues to contribute to some of these comorbidities. So ways in which we can address that, and there are a number of clinical trials looking at how one can put an even greater damper on this immune activation in people who are well controlled on antiretroviral drugs. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So switching gears a little bit now, pre-exposure prophylaxis or PrEP has been in the news in recent months. We saw the approval of Descovy in October 2019. Um, so what are your thoughts on the idea of treatment as prevention for HIV? And what role does PrEP play in reducing the burden of HIV in the United States? Well, I believe strongly that pre-exposure prophylaxis or PrEP is an absolutely essential tool in decreasing the incidence of HIV infection. You have treatment as prevention, which is treating an individual who is already infected with HIV to bring down the level of virus to below detectable, which many studies have now show make it essentially impossible if the virus is below detectable for that person to transmit their infection to an uninfected sexual partner. But the other part, the other side of the coin of prevention is pre-exposure prophylaxis. Now, pre-exposure prophylaxis is important for the individual, namely to decrease the likelihood that that person will acquire 
HIV if that person is in a somewhat high-risk category. But the other important aspect of it is, and we have clinical studies to show this, that at the community level, if you want to decrease the incidence of HIV infection, you really need to have PrEP in the mix. A number of studies that we supported here at the NIH, we supported them in Southern Africa, indicated that even when you proactively go out into the community and treat people aggressively, namely treatment as prevention, although it saves a lot of lives and decreases morbidity, overall it does not have a significant impact on the community incidence of HIV. Having us feel strongly that if you want to reduce the overall incidence, you have to include in your toolkit of interventions, you have to include pre-exposure prophylaxis or PrEP. Right. Very well said. Okay. So let's talk a little bit more about the work that the NIH is doing and things that you've been involved in. How is the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases working to reduce the burden of HIV in the United States? Well, I mean, NIAID, the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease, is the largest funder of HIV AIDS research in the world by far. So what we are doing is a variety of things. Number one, you know, the development of treatments and the testing in clinical trial of a variety of therapeutic interventions, like many of the regimens that are being used right now are regimens whose efficacy was determined by clinical trials that were funded by NIAID. Also, and importantly, developing vaccines. We have three major vaccine trials that are going on right now, two in Southern Africa, one in the Americas and in Europe, taking a look at the concept from the RV144 trial, which was done in Thailand several years ago, which showed a 31% efficacy. We need to do better than that. And these three ongoing trials are trying to improve upon that trial that was conducted in Thailand. There are also a variety of other approaches, such as the clinical trials, which show the efficacy of PrEP or pre-exposure prophylaxis. The now iconic trial of 052, which was an HPTN 052, which is a trial that definitively showed that treatment can serve as prevention by decreasing the viral load to undetectable, making it essentially impossible to transmit the virus to an uninfected sexual partner, not to mention all of the other studies that have delineated the mechanisms of pathogenesis, how you uh, address opportunistic diseases, including opportunistic infections and opportunistic tumors. So the entire array of basic and clinical research is predominantly supported by the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. That's great. That's uh, that's definitely sounds promising for the future of HIV. Thank you very much again for talking to us today and, and sharing your insight. My pleasure. It was very nice being with you.